Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Jordy Bailey. And I'm his friend who had abandoned him at the drop of the hat to join an enclave of warriors, Duncan Nickel. It's sad but true. It's sad but true. I know that Duncan would betray me in a moment. If the opportunity comes up to live a better, freer life, yeah, absolutely. Wouldn't even feel that bad about it. Youch. But today we're here to talk about Sisters of Sword and Shadow by renowned feminist writer Laura Bates. Carry on the proud tradition of A- of was it Y of X and Z naming scheme. Yeah, to be honest, it is a little too easy to make fun of that old naming convention. Like in our Children of Blood and Bone episode, you know, Sword of Truth and Heartbreak, um, Throne of Day and Midnight. Listen, I'm not gonna ever really kind of knock against an author about it because ultimately the title's there to sell the book and this is clearly an, a scheme that works and sells my only my only issue is like i just found this one in particular it got to the point where even in my notes i was looking back through them and i'd named this book sisters of sword and sorrow and didn't notice for like a week yeah and my notes accidentally called it the sisters of steel and shadow but geordie is this book as modal as the title is i think that's the real question well uh, well no i'd say it isn't not at all i mean we've seen plenty of kick-ass ladies in our in our exploration of fantasy so far we've encountered many female authors but we've never had a book that so has such a strong allegory i mean i can barely even call it an allegory it's just about a feminist movement in arthurian britain that is the case it it definitely this is a ya feminist i'm not gonna say retelling of Arthurian, because it doesn't really retell anything. I think on the blurb it might use that phrase, and that I don't think there's a misnomer. It is simply set against the same backdrop. There is very little of Arthurian legend actually being pulled here. And just a blurb of this novel, it's kind of designed for me, you know? There was a period of time, Duncan, in when I was at university, that for some reason... I was just so, such a fucking nerd about the stories of King Arthur and Lancelot and the different cycles and where certain parts of the Arthurian mythos comes from, which parts are, like, British, which parts are French, what's the Vulgate cycle, stuff like that. I mean, I do get it, and I do think there's a real enjoyment for not only enjoying, like, the stories themselves, but enjoying learning about how stories evolve over time. Oh, uh, I'm actually might insult the idea now, but I often feel that like Arthurian legend and uh, to an extent Robin Hood, like I draw the big parallels between those stories and like modern day like comic books in terms of it's this wide field of characters that just any author, you know, it doesn't belong to one person in one person's mind. Any person can just come along and add to it with the right copyright these days. And that, but add to the legend, and there's this, this mix of like where it's almost just as interesting going. So where did that come from? Well, that came from that series, and over there, and they're in this multiverse, and exactly like take for example the idea that uh, Merlin is a Cambian, like he's the the child of a devil, is from a very specific author who just came up with this idea. It wasn't part of the story before, um, and then other writers down the line said, "All right, I'm going to keep that," or "No, I'm not going to use that. That's silly." The character like. Do you include the character of Galahad? And if you include the character of Galahad, where does he fit into the story? Because what your interpretation is of that character, what about Percival? Is are Percival and Galahad the same person? And it's like it—it it sort of matters, but also doesn't, because it's mo- it is all fiction. This is a debate I've actually had with my partner. 
to what extent is King Arthur real? Mm. <laughs> and the answer that is he's not real. I mean, so we should clarify something. Um, because, again, I'm a fucking huge nerd about this. There is some historical precedent that someone called Arthur might have lived in sub-Roman Britain around about Wales or Cornwall, because there was no name for Arthur. And we should make something really clear. There is no King Arthur. He's impossible. Like, there is no place in history that you can find a someone who resembles Arthur. People have tried. They're all wrong. He's not real. But it is this big mystery. Why were all these kids called Arthur? And I think part of that mystery, and the way in which his story has changed so much over the millennia, makes him so fascinating. But he's not in this story. He is not. This is a very, no. very separate story. It's Arthur's Britain, but it's trying to take a very different look at Britain to make it a lens for our own modern society. So, Geordie, before we kind of really dive into the book itself, I know that you have a bit of history with this author. Do you want to kind of expand on that? Yes, and that's important to bring up ahead of time, because actually, I feel like it would be disingenuous not to make this clear. I said it in our previous episode, but this may be your first ever episode of the podcast, in which case, hello, welcome, we're so glad to have you uh, on this podcast, which I realise we never explain. Duncan and I read and review fantasy novels, and we, in an attempt to track the width and breadth of fantasy. We have a discussion every second week uh, where we talk about how we felt about the book and where it fits into the fantasy landscape. The reason why Duncan has brought this up, which is that I actually have a personal connection to the author. Uh, She was my English tutor um, when I was just nine or ten years old, um, and she was a recent graduate from Cambridge University. I learned how to write newspaper articles from her. And she was very nice. She stayed a friend of the family. And when she became this feminist leader, this leader of the um, everyday sexism movement, that actually was a really impactful part of my life. Because when you're just a very young teenager, you and you're specifically a young teenage boy, you kind of thumb your nose the idea of sexism. You just kind of don't believe it exists because you're not able to examine yourself or your friends, or stuff like that. But having an actual connection to a feminist leader, that led to me becoming a feminist. That was part of my journey. So, for that reason, I picked this book because I was like, I was really excited to see our two worlds intersect. Fantasy is a space that I spend a lot of my time thinking about, and now here she comes back into it. I really want to jump on here and emphasise this so much now at the start. I have huge amounts of respect for Laura Bates. Her everyday sexism movement has done so much good. I think it's incredible what's come out of that. And I've heard some really... And she's a really talented non-fiction writer as well. I've read her stuff in the past and in the previous week leading up to this episode. And she's really good at making her point and exploring real life topics. I'm really happy to hear that, Geordie. Because I haven't read um, pretty much any of her non-fiction works. I've read some of the articles she's written but I haven't read her, any of her books. Jordi, I need to put that out of the way so that all everything is out in the world. So much respect for Laura Bates. As a reviewer of fantasy literature, I didn't think Sisters of Sword and Shadow was a great example of modern or what modern YA fantasy can be. 
Yeah, unfortunately, I kind of have to agree. I didn't enjoy it as much as I wanted to. And as much as the message is solid, it didn't really advance the cause of feminism for me. You know, I didn't learn anything new or see things in a different perspective. And that was very, that was very upsetting because I was very much prepared to get into this book. And this book was sold to me on the back cover as a piece of YA fantasy doing a feminist retelling of Arthurian legends. As we've already referenced, it's not really a retelling. And I think I was a little bit, oh, sad when I kind of made that realisation that we weren't really going to get that approach. Yeah, I was really looking forward to, like, these lady knights, the sisters of Sword and Shadow, sort of working at first in the shadows and then alongside the more established knights, Sir Kay, Sir Galahad, Sir Lancelot, Sir Percival. And let's not say, this is the first in a planned series, and maybe we'll get there, but we're only looking at this first book today. And this first book, it had some errors in it. I'll say errors. It had some aspects that I found just brought it down, either in pacing, particularly in pacing, tone, and some of the core characters. I was reading this book thinking, I don't think I've got I'm feeling for these characters the way the author probably wanted me to and meant for me to. Now, Duncan, this is not um, The Poppy War. It's not Children, Blood and Bone. It's a new release, one a lot of people haven't read yet. Should we do a little run through and actually just say this is what happens in the book? I think it's imperative, to be honest. So Sisters of Sword and Shadow begins with our main character, Cass. I'm pretty sure it's Cassandra, but mostly referred to as Cass. On the day of her sister's wedding. It's an arranged marriage. She's not especially happy about it. She does not, She's also not impressed by the idea that she's going to have to grow up and get married herself to someone she might not love. And she has a chance encounter with a knight when her precious locket is stolen. A knight comes to her aid, hunts down the brigand with her, and it's revealed. Da-da-da-dum! It's a lady knight. Who ever heard of such a thing? And then she's whisked away from her humble farmer life to a secret enclave of sister knights. Women who have elevated themselves above their position in society to become knights and defend themselves and fight for truth and honour and justice and all that. She begins her training as a knight. She attends a couple of tourneys. She starts to prove her worth. And then, right towards the close of a book, things start to go bad. The, the secret of the sisterhood is threatened. And they have no choice but to fight to uh, to protect both themselves and the people of Northumbria. And they end the, the, the book with a secret raid on the evil knight's base. Kill a lot of people and then a great revelation is made about Cassandra and her true identity. Da-da-da-dum. Have I done a good job, Duncan? Did I leave anything out? There is a substantial section where they have to prep for like a midwinter's ball. But apart from that, I think you got it. Yes, yes, the ball, of course. That is actually a surprisingly important part of the story. But no, I think that's that's really got the, the key elements there. We're following someone. It's on their training, isn't it? They And when I first started, I was like, okay, we're whisked away to special school to learn to be special. I've got this. Yes, and I want to say something right now. Um, and that is that I owe an apology to um, RF Kuang about the poppy war because i said i thought that book should be like two or three books and that the first book should end at the end of like her first year at the academy and now i realize i was so wrong thank you um but i i I was so wrong when i said that because that's kind of what this book is you know this book ends 
after, you know, this great revelation is made about her true power. And that would happen at the end of the exact point I said I would end the first book of the Poppy War. And this book suffers from the fact that that thing happens. You spend the whole book watching her train and get ready. And this is one really big moment of action right at the end. But you spend so much time waiting for stuff to kick off. And then it, the book's over. This is my biggest complaint with this book. And I really want to kind of make this clear. And I want to lay it out. I'm so happy that this book took its sort of feminist approach. And had these strong feminist characters in the Arthurian legend. Because it was not for that aspect, Geordie. If it wasn't for that trump card in this novel. Dear God, I Mm. would be bashing it so much more. Because this book is so dull in places for me. There is so much time where we are training and we are waiting for things to happen. And I did not feel that the characters we were hanging out with were anywhere near charismatic enough to carry the downtime. I I wish I could disagree with you here, but unfortunately, I just have to agree um, on basically all those fronts. Like, I liked the characters, but I I wish there was a lot more depth to each of them. Like, the character of uh, Sigri in particular... It is Sigri, right? I'm not getting that wrong. I'll be honest, I I pronounced it Sigrid. <laughs> I was going to be like, it's such a... No, it is Sigrid, you're right. I, I, just, I just forgot the last letter. Um, the character of Sigrid, for example. Like, Sigrid is set up to be, like, just a classic dark horse character. Like, oh, they have a mysterious backstory, and, you know, they're very tough and cool. And I just wish she was a little bit more everything. I wish in her friendlier moments she was friendlier. I wish in her darker moments she was darker. I wish in her more mysterious moments she was more mysterious. I think she just needed to be dialed up two more notches, you know? Absolutely, in like every way. Sigrid is the character that first wishes Cass away from her everyday life and sets up as this sort of mentor character, perhaps. I thought maybe we'll get this sort of Obi-Wan Kenobi vibes, the one that she can be training from. <laughs> well, she's a squire too. She's the squire to Sigrid, who's a knight. And you're like, okay. I was really surprised, really surprised. Like, actually, when I realized this, my jaw kind of fell open that Sigurd wasn't the love interest because I really thought that's where it was going. I mean, I don't want to jump the gun on that. There's another character in this book who I also thought was going to be the love interest and isn't. Lily? Yes. But before we get down yeah, that road, Jordi, should we get to... No, 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 let's talk about it now. Let's talk about it now. Like, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I noted that uh, Sigrid's thighs are referred to as supple three times in the first couple of chapters. Oh, Bobby Howard language like, right, there. Aren't you Beautiful. coming on a little strong here? And I, <laughs> so when I realized later that she wasn't the main love interest, I was like, what? That's impossible. You talked about how supple her thighs were. No one talks about their friends and how supple their thighs are. Duncan, how many times have I told you your thighs are supple? I mean, not often enough. It would be nice on an occasion. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I mean, yes, it is interesting. And it's certainly something where I thought, this is almost a separate point, The where the narration, I'm like, is this Cass thinking these things? Or is this just the narrator's voice and the differentiation between the two? I'm pretty sure it is Cass. I'm pretty sure this book is third person limited. Because we don't get access to, like, Angharad's thoughts. Well, then there's also these moments where she talks about Lily and, like, her her warm, vibrant presence um, and, like, the, f- the spending the night without her. Because it's made very clear in the first night, they spend the first night physically together. Not 
I think they spend most nights together, yeah. don't they? They just share a, like a cot. They share a cot. And maybe, Geordie, maybe this is a little bit of my reading of it as a man and not having that close physical intimacy with my male friends that I did just read onto it more than should have been there. What I read onto that was a... And to be honest, this is sort of thing that, like, if it were a sapphic romance and I was coming out with this perspective, I would actually kind of be a bit homophobic because I interpret that as more of a sisterly thing. You know, Cass has left her sister behind... Uh, and then she immediately moves to this new place, and then she finds a new sister, a new older sister, and then she replaces her, you know? Like, um, she s- substitutes her sister with this other person, and I think her and her sister, they probably did sleep together in their little medieval house, you know? You're right, but maybe that is also, like, the historical angle that I also maybe didn't have that lens for. I just feel... But also, yeah, well, this is the sort of thing which people make fun of online about gals being pals, you know? How you, like, talk about how supple your gal pal's thighs are and how you sleep together every night and how you bring each other out of depression. Uh, we exist in different corners of the internet, but I will accept that. I think, for me, it's more of a case of, if I was doing a gender swap on this scenario, I would almost be disappointed as a reader. Like, I wanted them to get together as a couple because they seemed to get on so well together. They were good friends. I'm like... That's true. They, they work. Yeah. They work more than... And they spend basically every scene together yeah they're clearly they spend so much time together they seem to they really pick each other up they're really good friendship where they support each other in their different ways they have very different outlooks on life lily is much more vibrant and positive slightly overly at points mm. but still that's her outlook that i thought oh she balances cast off yeah, so she's well a chipper character when you compare that to the actual love interest and i almost want to do a little air quote to that you're like why Part of, I actually, like, I did like the character of Lily, but mostly because I quite, I quite like really sort of relentlessly chipper characters. That's just appealing to me. I I could, I appreciate why some people might not like that or might think it's like a shallow perspective, but I just enjoyed her being in a scene. She just perked things up a lot. I agree, and it's something that, you know, you, I feel like I do see in a lot every day. There are people who, although they might have a lot going on behind the scenes, they when they're in a group, they push that kind of upbeat perspective. And it's nice to hang around. Mm. And obviously, it's really nice when you're in a book and you're spending a lot of time with the character to maybe explore what's going on behind the scenes. But it's a positive influence to have a positive character. It's like the cool, dark loner. It's why you can't play him in D&D. Because ultimately, it's a social aspect. and you, It's actually annoying to hang around them. They can exist, but they have to exist on the fringes. Otherwise, they're just a downer. Okay, so that's Sigrid and Lily, but let's talk about the sisters as well, both the characters and the institute, and oh god, there's so much going to dive in here. So, got Lily and Sigrid, mentor, best friend, who are some of the other players? Well, the mentor, Sigrid, isn't the leader, that's another character called Angara, Angarad? Angharad. Angarad. Angharad. Am I not saying it right? Angarad. Angharad. Antharad. Angharad. You're trying to make me mad, Duncan. No, it's not fair. We are playing on hard mode when we bring in the Celtic names. You can say Angharad's girlfriend's name, though, right? Vivian. Yeah, he's got it, people. He knows what he's doing. Angharad and Vivian. Angharad is like the true blue leader. She sort of takes on the Arthur role of this little round table. She's very sort of dependable 
uh, well, actually, no, I was going to say dependable leader, but the great thing about Angharad, actually, and the, the serviceable role she plays in this is that she adds this great layer of darkness to the story. This is, I think, the, the strangest and most solid part, which is that the sisterhood represents this great gleaming opportunity for women in a society which is oppressive, which gives them no chance to live outside accepted roles, and it gives them a chance to be heroic. It gives them a chance to be safe. It's a sanctuary for uh, for women who want to be brave and for women who need shelter and they need to hide. That's the really awesome part. But it has like this dark underside to it. The idea that they have to do bad, desperate and uh, self-compromising things to keep it afloat. And that I thought was really interesting. Essentially, Ankhard, and I will just keep pronouncing it like that, has to almost not, not enjoy the fruits of her own labour here to keep it going. Everyone else, it's about being free and getting to step away from society's expectations. But the background is that Ankara's husband was a merchant who travelled afar and he was a complete abusive ass. Yeah. And there's a moment where Vivian murders him and Angarad has to keep up this illusion that he is a, he's alive, but he's away. So whenever their guests over, whenever someone just drops in, she has to keep up the illusion that she is still the submissive wife to this man who's just away. And there's some really dark scenes where she ends up having to sleep with these other knights who just are passing through. And Vivian's like, can we not just kill them? Can we not just tell them to get lost? She's like, no, this is the best way to keep up the illusion. No, it's right. It's 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 darker because you want them to be able to just stand up, speak up for themselves, but they have to do it in this subtler, more suffering way, and it's upsetting and it's unpleasant. But it's handled quite well, actually. It doesn't feel overwrought ever. It's not like the poppy war where you're just disgusted about what you've read. You're like, I feel uncomfortable, but it exists in a state where it's it's making a statement, and I understand what it's saying. It's this really beautiful point. Firstly, the statement of what has to be done to achieve like the greater goals, but also to Angarad as a leader made me just have so much respect for this character because it was this idea that she is willing to sacrifice so much more to keep this sisterhood afloat. She, for me... Yes, it's, it's sort of... And, it's not a, and also it's not a burden that any male figure would be expected to make. You know, it's not a price any of them would have to pay. It's, and that speaks again to the um, to the ways in which these women are penalised and in which they're trapped. So I really enjoyed her as a character, basically, for being mm. strong despite this extra layer of adversity that she's having to face. There is something I have to say, though, about the sisterhood, and it I just feel a little bit let down by it, because... The blurb and the way in which people have reviewed this book and they've talked about this book and they've pitched this book is that it is a female Knights of the Round Table, right? They're doing their own chivalric daring do's. They're going out and they're saving people. They're going out and fighting bad guys. Oh, we're getting to the painful point. And that just doesn't really happen. And that's really surprising. No, that doesn't. There is multiple points in this book. And this is something I, it's almost a critique on how it's been sold to me. They prioritise, on one hand, keeping hidden over being heroic. Yeah. and uh, but, that almost, but that's almost not true. Sorry, Joy, I have to take back my own statement there. Because they don't. Because they prioritise going to jousts and winning honour on the, the field of, 
you know, I don't know what this is called. What do you call that? The field of it's glory. Not, you, know, you go jousting. Yeah, well, it's like, wanna, yeah. it's not helping people. They want to get, like, accolades. But, okay, Geordie, no, sorry, I'm going to end up falling into a rat <laughs> okay. here. Um, <laughs> so, this organisation is about being secret. Part of the point is they should be allowed to seek out glory, though, right? Yes, part of the point is they should be allowed to keep, seek out glory. Part of the other point they make is that they have to keep secret. But also, yeah. it's like, you're seeking out glory in these jousts, but you're not almost seems in this book in just this book that they prioritize that over seeking out glory in just the more heroic nature of going out and saving people yeah i i would i would really rather they were like there's a giant attacking a village let's go fight it let's go win let's go slave a dragon let's go chase off these bad things and and we'll win glory and acclaim that way i mean obviously they're not they want glory, but not renown. You know, they don't want to be famous because they're they're secrets. They don't have coats of arms. They go with white shields. But then that's the point. What's the point then if you're gaining glory for the white shields? You, there's no brand. No one's going to talk about you because they don't know you. I mean, it's like if people at the Olympics uh, went blindfolded. Not blindfolded. They wore masks. You know, they had disguised identities. They'd still know they're the champ. You know, they'd still know they're the best. That's what they're pursuing by going to tourneys. But proving that they're the best. Specifically, the actual reason, the really important reason, is they need money. They need to win prize money to keep the sisterhood afloat. And it ends up being this cycle where they need to support the sisterhood. And to support the sisterhood, they have to go to these tourneys. Which means they spend most of the time in the book focused on winning tournaments to get money to keep the sisterhood afloat so they can go to tourneys to earn money to keep the sisterhood afloat. There's only a couple of scenes, like three in total, where they actually help the people. And finally, Geordie, we actually, somewhat stumbling, I think, reveal the the real, not the fault in this book, the, the disappointment that I kind of suffered. Because, Geordie, this is barely a fantasy book. Like, it's true. I want it's them... very low fantasy. If this was a fantasy, a classic fantasy, do you know what I feel like I would? I kind of wanted to see? We need money to support the sisterhood. Let's hunt down the dragon's horde. Let's go and fight the pirates on the bay and steal their treasure. No. <laughs> I mean... No, no, we've got to do this the legit way, guys. We've got to do this. We've got to win the tourneys. Um, it says here in the rule book. Uh, this is historic fiction. This is what they did. This is what knights actually did. And you're just like, I know this is cool. This is just, I always feel a little missold. And that's not necessarily... There is a, li- a strange line in this book in between what is fantastical and what is real. And it's quite clear that she's intentionally picked this low fantasy. She doesn't want magic to be all over the place. It has to be subtle. It has to be just in the background. Like, there's an understanding that fairies are out there. They're just not here in front of you like this magical deer in the woods that's probably a fairy uh the the magic sword you know it can't be removed from the stone it's not the sword in the stone it's a different sword in a different stone it's the sword of the emperor constantine which he magically inserted into the stone i think he dropped it right he dropped Didn't it that, when they say he dropped oh it? he did he die on the battlefield and it fell into the stone and that's where it remains choosing for it to be constantine is actually kind of like a clever trick though because constantine was the emperor who like removed 
Romans from Britain. So he's the beginning of the sub-Roman British period. And he's like the first Christian Roman, which ties in that, you know, Christian Arthurian connection, you know. So that that actually kind of makes sense. I think not to stumble on and to just recognize that i appreciate this is somewhat maybe my own fault or my problem not the books but this was a much lower fantasy that and i'd gone into expecting when it said on the back That's a sort of question of taste. Arthurian retelling and i felt it's a question of taste. it is a question of taste but when i i bought into i thought i was buying into this Arthurian retelling, and when the book itself is sort of dull on its own terms i think it just exemplified that kind of disappointment within me that I would get it. that is partly my fault or on me. I, uh, perhaps, perhaps it's just a failure of the blurb and the marketing behind it. That you wanted it to be something else. I mean, it is an Arthurian retelling. It's a retelling of the story of King Arthur. Just King Arthur's not in the story. I think we only see two of Arthur's knights in the whole story: um, Sir Kay and Sir. What's Sir Kay's dad called again? Sir Eh. It means of an E. Well, you're well beyond my Hector. 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 Sir Ector is classic because he's like supposed to be King Arthur's stepdad. Not his stepdad, like his adopted father. He's like the guy you see in like the Sword and the Stone. He's the guy who Arthur lives with. Oh, okay. Yes, I do know <laughs> from watching Disney's The Sword and the Stone. So yeah, Ector and exactly. Sir Kay, yes. Brilliant. That's good. To be fair, there is actually another Arthurian character that is doesn't appear, but consequences of his actions are strongly... Um, in this story, and that's obviously Lancelot and Elaine. Yes, right, of course. Elaine shows up. Now, let me get on my notes, because Duncan, we need to be quite clear about this. There are three important Elaines in the story of King Arthur, in the, in the mythos, okay? Yep. Okay, so I'm going to take you on a bit of a rant, forward slash explanation on the three Elaines in the stories of King Arthur, how they're included in this story, and a very unfortunate implication which is created by the blurring of the lines between the three Elaines. So, Duncan, how how familiar are you with the stories of King Arthur, by the way? To be very honest, not that familiar at all. I read when I was a little boy, Michael Morpurgo's, I think, The Boy Who Would Be King? And it's been on my read list for a long, long time to read. Uh, in fact, I think, was it um, White's? Is it The Man Who Would Be King? It, it's it's a number of stories. It begins with The Sword and the Stone. The Once and Future King. The Once and Future King. That's it. That's the collection of all the small stories. But no, very little. Yeah. I know a little bit of that. I saw the Disney film. I know The Sword and the Stone. And then I know afterwards, there's The Green Knight. There's Monty Python. The mm. Grail somehow comes yeah. into it. But I don't understand how. And that's about it. So, no, very light. And you've read Bernard Cornwall's Warlord trilogy, right? I have read the first one in the trilogy. I must actually admit. You should should read the rest, man. They're good. They're good. Yeah, but they're very very grounded versions. They're not particularly fantastical. Yes, they're they're a very big reinterpretation of it. But they they are helpful in... They're actually really good in terms of grounding you in what Arthur might look like if it sort of was grounded in the time period people set it in as opposed to what people imagine it to be because of French writers who came along in the later period. But I won't get into that now. I won't get into that now. What I'm going to get into now is the three Elaines. So we meet in this Elaine of Ascalot. 
Elaine of Ascalot is better known as the Lady of Shalott. She's from a she's most famous from a Tennyson poem. Um, it's a pretty good poem. I read it for GCSE English. It's it's good. Yeah, there is a different Elaine. I don't know if she has a title, but she's Lancelot's mum. So she's a French lady. She gave birth to Lancelot, but he, he was stolen by a fairy. And then there is Elaine of Corbenic. Elaine of Corbenic is the daughter of the Fisher King. They're important because all three of these ladies circle around the character of Lancelot. Elaine of Ascalot is the one who appears in this story. We know she's from Ascalot. She's described as Elaine of Ascalot. Her story and the legend told about her lines up with the tale of Elaine of Ascalot in that she falls in love with Lancelot and then she dies from being in love with him. That's how much she loves him. And then she shows up and says, actually, I'm not, I didn't fall in love with Ascalot. Sorry, I didn't fall in love with Lancelot. Um, And people made up this story as a sort of conspiracy theory against me to hide the fact that I'm pregnant with Lancelot's child. Now, this is very important to my opinion on this story because making Elaine, the mother of Lancelot's child, squeezes two Elaines together. She is both Elaine of Ascalot, which is her name. And Elaine of Corbenic. Because Elaine of Corbenic is the mother of Lancelot's child. She's the mother of Galahad. Sorry, is, is Galahad Lancelot's son? Yes. Actually, Lancelot and Galahad are both called Galahad. Galahad is Lancelot's birth name. But he was stolen by Vivian or Nimue, depending on how, what you want to call her, the Lady of the Lake, more specifically. She was taken away from his homeland raised up to be a knight. He joined the Knights of King Arthur without knowing his true name, just thinking he was called Lancelot. He rescues Guinevere from the Dolorous Tower, and then after he does so, he lifts up this magic stone which no one else can lift, and written on it is his true birth name, and that name is Galahad. Then later, he meets Elaine of Corbenic. He's deeply in love with Guinevere. That's classic part of Lancelot's story. And... Elaine of Corbenic has herself transformed to be identical to Guinevere to seduce him. But whilst they're in the throes of passion, Guinevere just happens to walk into the room. And Lancelot realizes what has happened. He realizes that he's been duped and been raped. And he goes insane. He has a complete mental breakdown. He rips off his armor. He runs away into, into the woods. And by the way, knights in King Arthur's stories do that a lot. They go insane, they rip off their armor, and they run into the woods. It happens like four times. So, Duncan, I think what you're getting at here, what I'm, you see what I'm getting at here, right? I, I a big, sort of do. They heavily... A big part of this book is about sexual violence. Because she takes on the role of Elaine of Corbenic. You're implying that they're the same character just by the fact they have the same name. She is the mother of Lancelot's child. That child's going to be Galahad. So either this is just a huge gap in the author's understanding of Arthurian's story. She doesn't know that there are two Elaines, and you need to make a pretty big distinction between them, or there might be implications if one Elaine gives birth to Lancelot's child, because now the Sisters of Sword and Shadow are sheltering a rapist, right? Okay, well, 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 okay. Yes, through those implications, that is the case, but I do have to give the author some benefits here because that is not the Elaine 
she is named after. Although you're saying she's the mother of of Lancelot's child, that would make her that Elaine, the rapist Elaine, right? Um, the Elaine actually being referenced is the first Elaine who dies of heartache. So if we assume that the child is not called Galahad, then this is just a separate Elaine who also was with Lancelot, who also had his child, who may or may not get end up called Gal- uh, Galahad down the line. We have a Schrodinger's rapist. If the child is called Galahad, that means it's Elaine of Brionic, or Corbenic. And if it's not, she's just Elaine of Ascalot. And again, in this retelling, the details can be either way. But you're right, it would be very interesting in this famous feminist retelling to take a character who is to the hist- more historic canon, not historic as in real, I mean historic as in the history of the canon that has, or literary canon that has already been written, and make her the more the, the victim and not the assaultist. I mean, it just it just feels a little bit like speaking out both sides of your mouth. You know, you're saying that this woman is a victim of Lancelot because he seduced her, ran off, made up this other story. Um, but you know, if you're drawing from the same stories, like Lancelot is a victim, and instead of like presenting as a chance to say oh no this this character has been hurt in some ways by the patriarchy or in anything like that you just say no 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 he's just like all the rest it's another negative depiction of Lancelot and to be honest and this is this is part of where I as someone who is really interested in the Arthurian stories um where I say I'm really tired of just always having it be that Lancelot's the bad guy you know that's not a novel take. That's not new. That's not new and exciting. That's not a fresh, original way. So many writers do the exact same thing where they say, maybe Arthur's knights aren't all good and rosy, eh? That's not, like, fresh and new and, and entertaining because I can't remember the last time that Lancelot was the good guy. I think that's a very fair take. And I certainly think it lends to a feeling of not slight mean-spirited or not actually being as in love with the Arthurian legend behind it like you're taking this character and you're twisting him and you're like yeah he's been twisted you're you're beating down on something that has already been beaten quite a lot which Mm. is Lancelot's you know position as a chivalrous knight I found this to be when I read it not knowing as much of the history I was like well okay I, I think this is a, a, a different take and it does tie in. I think I was almost happy to see the tie in. I'm like, okay, good, we're referring back to Lancelot. But you're right, I, I did feel like, okay, where is this going? Because the message here is they're not as chivalrous as we, as history has led us to think they are. And I'm like, mm. okay, you've said that in many other places. What more are you adding here other than Lancelot's the worst of the bunch, potentially? Yeah, I mean, isn't that just game of thrones right like i mean here's the thing a, a, a story that i kept having in my head of this because so much of this book is focused on tournaments i thought of the knight of seven kingdoms a knight of the seven kingdoms i think the best a song of ice and fire story uh that's the prequel duncan egg story isn't it that's right your namesake uh, man no. i actually think i might be I, I know the great hero sir duncan do you know what my actual namesake is have I ever told you this? No idea. Oh, well, I'm going to go on a sidetrack here. It is actually a fantasy book. And it's 
Oh. Well, yes, it is, ultimately. Do you want to guess? Um, Macbeth? It is. It's actually the novelisation of Macbeth called King, or Macbeth the King. King Macbeth? Mm. And apparently my parents were really stuck picking a name, and I think Alexander was really coming to the top of the list, but my dad was reading a novelisation of Macbeth, and my mum literally looked over while he was reading one night and saw King Duncan on the page and was like, Duncan's a nice name. And that's how I ended up. That's great. That's funny. Uh, sorry about your poor end. Like things end up better for Sir Dunk than they do for King Dunk. I think the point was though is that he's meant to be this absolute symbol of what a good king is in Macbeth. That was sort of the the notion behind it. Because he is, he's he's also a bit of a dummy. Though. Oh, he is absolutely. He does not see it coming. But he is meant to be a I will lift you up and fill you full of growing kind of guy. Hmm. Mm. I was named after my great-grandfather. Not It's a Wonderful Life. Aren't you also named after your grandfather in that same vein? No, my great-grandfather. I thought thought you were several Geordie... Like, weren't there several Geordies in your family? There's a lot of George Baileys. So Geordie is, like, the Scottish diminution of George. And so my great-grandfather was George Bailey, and his father 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 was George Bailey, and then it was eight of them. So are you are you the eighth or are you the ninth? I think I'm the eighth. Not that I'm like Geordie the eighth because we have different surnames and we didn't come like in order. But yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm the eighth one. What were we talking about? Yeah, Sir Dunk. Yes. Right. You know, the whole point of like a knight of the seven kingdoms is you have someone who doesn't really know what it means to be a knight. He sees it as a tool for self-elevation to get out of poverty and he wants to be a good knight. And he believes that there's such a thing as good knights, but all around him are just assholes and scoundrels and people who disgrace the name of knights. But he keeps fighting for what he thinks it means to be a good one. And, you know, that's the state of fantasy in a moment. Like, so much, like, when was the last time anyone actually gave a, a, a depiction of knights where they were good and true and chival- chivalric? Like, the last book I read that was heavily inspired by the Arthurian mythos, I think it was a pretty good book. It was called Legendborn. It's set in the modern day, and it's set in, like, North Carolina. And all of the knights of a round table and that are, like, kind of low-key racist. None of them think they are. But they're all, like, these privileged white kids who grew up rich in North Carolina. And so they don't know when they're kind of being douchebags, or they're kind of being racist. And they have to be told, like, hey, don't touch my hair, stuff like that. Honestly, I couldn't tell you the last time I read something which just had knights in the most classic sense of being, you know, holding up the high values, being honourable, being... What, what, what actually, when you say chivalrous, like, what is that? Like, you need to be, like, humble... Uh, be nice to ladies. Charitable. Fight fair. Um, be charitable, yep. Be chaste. Uh, don't drink too much. Be temperamental. Uh, be courageous. And there's probably a bunch of, like, Christianity stuff in there. But, like, specifically, chivalry is supposed to be associated with chivalric love. And that's where you get the story of Lancelot and Guinevere and how their love is true and he would do anything for her. And it's But it's forbidden because she has a husband and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fair enough. Um, just on that note, as you were going through the list, all I could think of was, like, the old Ultima PC game where you actually have to... You win the game by, like getting certain points in like eight virtues all right you heard of that no never no, it's, uh, 
<laughs> it was uh, Ultima 4. Uh, my dad used to play it. And you had literally points for honesty, compassion, valour, justice, sacrifice, honour, spirituality and like humility. And you had to like get them high enough to qualify as like the divine avatar <laughs> of like a holy order. Well, the funny thing is that concept. there is a, a tabletop role-playing game system about the Arthurian Knights called Pendragon. And in that, your main powers are like chivalrous, uh, chivalrous qualities. Like, how courageous are you? Make a courage check. How chaste are you? Make a chastity check. You know, stuff like that. But coming back to that point, you're right. It's actually, just subverting I, 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 no, things. Actually, if I can see just one more thing about the Pendragon RPG, because actually this ties yes. into something this book does well. One of the skills in that game is recognize. How good are you at recognizing other knights? Because... In the Arthurian stories, knights are constantly failing to recognize each other. Fathers fight sons, sons fight brothers, people fight friends, they have no idea who each other are. They're really bad at reading their, each other's codes of arms. And that is maintained in this book. Like, you have all these lady knights, and no one recognizes them. No one realizes they're being duped. But that's super canon to uh, the stories of King Arthur. So, like, that is completely legit and, like, a really choice decision for this book. I am happy that at least that is canon. I think we need to get off this canon and get back to the book we're critiquing. But I do want to say, you mentioned about, like, loads of people being subverting and saying the knights aren't all chivalrous. Mm. And I've just had to Google how old a Yankee in King Arthur's court is. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Are they not good boys in that one? No, they're not. It's about an American going back and realising that the knights weren't all as glorious as they would be. And, you know, to be honest, being a king and not being a democracy, that's a bad way to run a country. <laughs> Mark Twain wrote in what? The 1870s? 1889. 1889. So, so there we go. That's where it dates back to. 1889. They're not even nice in King Arthur, in um, fucking The Sword and the Stone. So Kay's an asshole. Okay, so that's not a new idea. But I do think you're right. You've potentially got an aspect of the story which explores um, an assault on Lancelot. And by kind of subverting that, it does feel like you had other opportunities. Um, a bit more than bad taste. And it, it doesn't add a lot more to this story. Because this story has so many examples of knights being dicks. And it is un- it's really interesting because... Geordie, did you ever feel when reading this? We've got our core cast of characters and they're trying to fight the system. And we have Gamlin, who is the love interest, and he's a great guy. Every other man we meet, even if they're quite a small role, they are a dickhead. I, I, I really don't like... It's, it's, so, it's so troublesome trying to talk about this in a way that's like... So many times guys will bash feminist books because they say oh it depicts all men as being evil and that's stupid when the book should be and they don't say this thing but you know a book like this should challenge the patriarchy and say and say why these things happen and explain it and say we want to fight against this system but this but it is really it really does like there are not a lot of good guys in this book, and I shouldn't be looking for the good guys. I should just be s- supporting the sisters and achieving their goals. But boy, howdy, it is literally just one one guy. Well, two guys, two guys. Two guys and another guy off screen. And now I need to emphasize, this isn't necessarily a problem. Both from within the text, you know, you're talking about a time where 
if you're having you're showing that men you know it's a societal problem so it is a lot of the men exactly yeah you're talking about the patriarchy but i don't think this book really succeeds in talking about the patriarchy i think it just succeeds in showing these guys just doing what they do being asses consistently and it almost makes it more jarring by having that one well those few good guys because it really just makes you go did you come to these conclusions innately like gamlin as a character just appears to be all the things a knight should be and there's there's very little conversation about why are you different there's one explanation for one character which i actually really disliked uh the sisterhood's blacksmith um said that like my father taught me this trade and Cass is surprised and she says well my father was raised only by his mother and therefore has more enlightened views on a woman's role and i sort of like went what 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 are you talking about like that's like your answer that this guy only had like a woman in his life and therefore he was fine like you can just say like oh he wasn't corrupted by like him having a dad that's like a really weird thing to say you know like and it's not like all men who have a single mother grow up to be feminist icons you know i mean as someone who's raised predominantly just by my mother from the age of 10 i mean i'm a nice guy but i'm not an icon yeah, and I would bet, you know, like, you had to learn to be a feminist and to understand women's issues, not just because you're, you're raised mostly by your mum. You learn to just the way everyone else does. Yes, by, by just being in society. And it's it makes it almost makes it sound that, like, um, a male figure is inherently anti-feminist uh, in this situation and that all women are inherently feminist. I think that was more the point that kind of got me. It's like, you're sort of brushing this brush of like, all women are inherently feminist. And I was just a little bit like, I feel there's a bit more nuance here that we could be exploring. And I think that phrase, which I love, and I think it is so, it's such a good tool for talking about it, which is that the patriarchy is a smog we all breathe in. And it explains why everyone who lives in society might have adopted old-fashioned views, which maybe we can't even put a reason to, but that's why mothers will tell their daughters to dress a certain way or to not act a certain way because they want them to grow up to be proper ladies. And in doing so, they're doing the same sort of conditioning where we tell women how to behave in society, the way in which they're expected to behave. And now, kind of bring that all of that back down to the book itself i think that kind of gets this position of it's not that i hate this idea that the author's been here to work i just felt like it's a simplification to an extent that i wasn't expecting i was hoping for a bit more nuance from from laura bates based on her other works and this ya fantasy book of hers really made it a very black and white issue in terms of morality and the thing is, is that you can really tell, in my opinion, that she's much more used to writing nonfiction because so much of scenes where characters are talking, you have two characters sort of take separate sides and they sort of bounce ideas back and forth between each other. Like the scene where Gamelon rescues Cass at a party from a bad incident with another knight. And later, Lily and another character, maybe Rowan, they have this debate between them where they say, 
should we respect him for this? Because on one hand, Lee's like, he did a good thing. Obviously, he deserves commendation for doing a good thing. And Roman says, well, should he be rewarded for doing a good thing? Shouldn't he just be expected to do a good thing? And in this way, that scene of dialogue, it, it sounds a lot more like, a, you know, an essay as opposed to an actual scene of dialogue. And the thing about that is that if it is a lot more just based around bringing ideas to the fore and giving your perspective and trying to inspire these ideas in younger readers, and we should make clear, this book is, I think it's definitely aimed at the way lower end of YA. Like, I think this is appropriate for like 14 year olds. I would have gone, uh, even said, I would not had say given this to an 11 year old in terms of the complexity of the language if not the ideas well dude there's a lot of sexual violence in this book is there well yeah there is no it's not it's not good sorry i need to rephrase that there is it's not gratuitous though i was no, getting it's into off screen but like Bernie Cornwell at this time. murders her rapist yeah okay you're absolutely right they just say, say 14 then i received my comments but you're right this is aiming for the younger age so maybe it's good to get these ideas over. And I think particularly if you're someone who's very new to this, I think that's another aspect. If you're mm. reading this book and you are uh, a young person and you maybe hasn't engaged with the larger discourse and you haven't read essays already or multiple articles, you know, you've not gone to university and sat in a lecture theatre and heard a debate, mm. then this would be kind of a good introduction. This is something I completely that agree. I had this conversation with my younger sister um, before this, I wanted to you know, get a bit of her perspective. And one thing she said, I was, I said to her, I went, the thing is, it's doing this, it's doing that. And these are good feminist messengers. I just want to ask you, someone who maybe reads a bit more YA, I was sort of expecting maybe a little more in terms of the nuance and the, the ideas and the thoughts and how it was put forward. Was that fair of me? And she just kind of went, well, to be honest, you, we can't answer that without being like a young only a young person you know we neither of us know what a, a 14 year old would really think in this day and age because we haven't mm. grown up now you know the world is different from even when we were young so it's a lot harder to kind of pinpoint is that what you expect and then the older i was like well i can only really critique it as a book and my own enjoyment and then kind of just leave it open to the field if you're listening to this and you like what you're hearing or think it's curious then give it a go Yes, well, I and from- I think that if I could recommend this book to anyone, it would be if you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle and you want to and you're interested in this particular book, I would buy it for a teenager. I would get it for a teenager. It won't be the best fantasy novel of that this book that teenager will have read, but it is full of feminist ideas. It's a great introduction to giving them a clue as to how they could be self-righteous in, you know, their authority over their own body, their autonomy. And also, not every book can be the grand answer to, yes, this is the definitive, nuanced depiction of this particular topic. I remember once, I listened to another podcast, that's right, Duncan, I listened to other podcasts, uh, called Musical Splaining. Uh, It was hosted by Lindsay Ellis, And in one episode, at the time, she doesn't do that podcast anymore, um, at the time, and they review the musical Six. Duncan, are you familiar with the musical Six? I have seen the musical Six. It's a great musical. You've done me one better. It's incredible. So the musical Six is a retelling, retelling, it is a musical where we take the six wives of Henry VIII 
and they basically each it's sort of framed in the idea of I'd say like a late nineties girl band. Yeah, and it's like each very wife girls allowed Spice Girls. And essentially, each wife gets a chance to, to kind of stand forward and, and they do a song where she tells her story from her perspective. And it's a really great musical. And what I'll be like, at the end, the end message is, it's not so much about like what each of them did or the importance or the relative tragedy of what went on. It's just the fact mm-hmm. that like they had lives and interests and accomplished things separate to just being married to Henry VIII. Yeah. And specifically at the end, they all sort of unite and they form like their their group. They form their little band. And when Ellis reviewed this this show, she said, you know, this is stuff we've all seen before. This like girl power thing, like it's nothing new and, you know, it's sort of a bit played out. And I was thinking to myself, you know, you describe in her review of a show how a lot of young teenagers were there. And they probably haven't seen whatever you were referring to when you said, you've seen this before. This is probably their first introduction to it. So you always have to be telling that first played out easy story again and again and again for people who've never seen it before. Sure, that's such a good thing to kind of grasp on. And I felt this in in my own life quite a few times. Geordie, I once had someone try and tell me that like her, the Disney movie Hercules wasn't very good because it was like, oh, well, it's just like Rocky. I'm like, yeah, but as a kid, I hadn't seen that, had I? Why would I have seen Rocky <laughs> before Hercules? So Zero to Hero story, I'm like, yes, it was my first Zero to Hero story. That's so true. I love it. Yeah, And <laughs> I think that's such a good point. I think that's something that I maybe hadn't quite articulated, but there is value in this being a first story, an introduction. Mm. I think it's just also, though, there is also value in us standing here and going, yeah, but it is only the first step. If you have come further looking back on this, I'm, we don't normally say recommendations more towards the end, but I was like, if someone came to me like, I want sort of a, a feminist approach to a, a classic fantasy story, I would definitely be grabbing, I don't know, Cersei uh, by Madeleine Miller off the shelf long before I went to pick this one up. I'd be like, you give well, this a go. Maybe. I guess another way I could put it is to say that someone like Sarah J. Maas, who writes books about strong female character partners, you know, you know, they get to have the pick of a litter. They get to choose seeing these various different shades of bad boy, you know? None of her characters start their stories as virgins. They all already have sexual autonomy. Sarah J. Maas, you could say, has stood on the shoulders of giants. And Laura Bates has kind of gone back to first principles. She's building it from the ground up. I think that's a really positive point. I'm going to slightly undercut us now and bring us back to... Oh, something. no! Sorry, Geordie. Because that, re- that is something that Laura Bates has done really well. Geordie, we're an hour into this. We've not really talked about the main character. Yes, yes, that's true. Look, Cass just... She's just quite a bit of a placeholder character, you know? She, um... She's there for you to insert yourself in. She doesn't have a lot of strong, divisive personality traits. I mean, like, take the scene where they talk about um, Gallahoe and whether he did the right thing. She doesn't chime in. It happened to her, but she doesn't have a perspective on it because that would probably shift the, uh, the argument in one direction. And I kind of think that's a shame. And I know it's... Uh... You know, it's a very specific choice made by an author to create the main character to be more of a blank slate. But in this whole story about agency and making your own decisions, Cass doesn't feel like she actually gets to do that all that much. 
she's kind of wished away. She stands on the sideline to other people's conversations about Sometimes, both people what to do. When the first tourney happens, she doesn't take part. She watches. And so it just makes her feel a little weaker. Now, I don't think that's something that maybe this story, because that, that decision can work. There are examples where there are female characters who are more of a blank slate. And I can't believe I'll say this. In, say, Twilight, when we read it last year, I thought Bella Swan being a bit more of a blank slate worked for that story. I don't think it works for yeah. Cass. You're supposed to like Edward and then insert yourself into Bella's place. I do think that Bella is a little bit more expressive than Cass in only because Bella... Well, no, I mean, the scenes where, like, um, Cass is really depressed and it describes depression in quite an evocative and strong way. I felt like that was really expressive and I thought that was pretty pretty well written. But I felt like that was one scene in a book of her otherwise being very much on the sidelines. When you talk about that inciting incident, let's go right back to the start of the story. Cass is wished away. Mm. Now, this scene plays out. Cass is kind of upset. Her, her sister's getting married. She's losing her sister, effectively. She's moving away, leaving home, and she's thinking through the lighter scene and the life she has in front of her. And the villain, this brigand bandit, the word bandit gets used a lot, Geordie, and all I can think of, and I know this, again, very much on me, is, like, the villain, the enemies you encounter in, like, Fable. You know, it's like, ah, oh, Mm. Two bandits have appeared. Um, he literally rides along the road. He's already being chased, I believe, at this point. And it's true. This guy is so committed to doing evil. And then he sees he's being chased by a knight. He sees this young woman on the side of the road holding her locket, just like out in front of her. And like, I don't think he even <laughs> stops. He like in saddle, just like yunk. That's mine. Hacha. <laughs> Twirls so his true. mustache and then like gallops away. And then you can almost hear him saying "yoink," <laughs> and then yeah, Secret comes riding up, and basically is like, "Do you want to come with me? Do you trust me?" Like puts a hand down, and although Cast makes the decision mm. to go with her, Cast doesn't know the wider context of what's about to happen. She like okay, and then after they catch up the brigand, he events happen, he dies. Secret is very much like, "Okay, you're coming back to my fortress now." Cass does not get much say in that. It's true. No, no. She does eventually make the decision to stay, but she doesn't make the decision to go. And that's fine. Like, it's nothing wrong with being a character being whisked away on an adventure. Um, a ton of novels are about characters who don't want to be on adventures and have to are, are forced to take part. But those characters are still making big, dynamic decisions. Even if they want to go home, they're still choosing to how they progress with the story. She kind of gets immediately slotted into the role of student. She's told what to do. Train with this sword. Train with this bow. And I think that's the, the point, is that for this story of empowerment, Cass does not get to make a lot of decisions. She's told, you're, she decides to be at the school, fair enough, but then she's told, we're going to the tourney. That's the word I've been looking for. Tourney, not joust. Tournament. Tourney. Tourney. Thank you. We're going to the tourney. We're going to the ball. You need to learn to dance. And even at mm. the end when they make the decision to go and fight the great villain, uh, Mordaunt. It should yet. be her. It should be Cass who makes that choice. Yes. Like, her voice. She should be the one to cross the line because she's the main character. And she isn't. And I again, it goes back to what I just said. This can work in another story. I just don't think it works here. Mm. She's too passive for this empowering narrative that we're on. Yeah. 
I mean, like, like t- here's, here's, here's the thing. How about this, right? The character of Guts in the Golden Age, right? Yep. Guts has very little agency in that story. He spends a huge amount of time just following Griffith's orders. You know, he does what he's told. He doesn't really think for himself. And that's the problem. That's the thing that Guts has to overcome. That's part of his character arc, is realizing that he's just a sword for someone else to wield. And he leaves to find his own destiny. And that is the true inciting incident. That's what makes everything go wrong. His big decision. I think another angle on it would be, we don't get a lot of Cass dreaming about the future. She's like, I'm here. I'm free now to live my own life. And you're like, yeah, you're here. You're going to be trained to be a knight. That's your one skill. So unless I really feel that you've chosen to be a knight and defend the people and I just didn't feel that she'd like chosen knighthood. She'd chosen the sisterhood. But what the sisterhood then do... They're kind of the same thing in this story. I think it's a little wobbly. Like the whole idea of being knights and standing up for all the good values. I never felt that Cass really at any point showed that she really, really deeply cared to go about and be a hero. Or maybe I'm being a bit unfair there. Yeah, because because in the scenes where they help people, it's almost entirely Angharad or Sigrid who helps people. It's not her. She only really fights in the um, final joust, obviously, and then in the final climax. Up until that point, there's no real... The final joust, the attack by um, Mormont's... It is a Mormont? No, Mormont's from Game of Thrones. Mordant. She fights Mordant's guys after they attack the little hamlet... Um, she loses Lily, and then in the final battle. So about three times. Oh, actually, let's kind of focus in on her fighting. Because this is... I wanted to see your take, how you felt about this. So our main character, Cass, whenever she gets into fighting, she is a great fighter. Because she feels she's just possessed by this spirit. This sort of... I, I, not quite berserk. It's not quite seeing red. But she gets possessed by this energy. And she just knows how to fight. It's close. Jordy, how do you feel about that? Initially, I was really wary because I don't like the idea of the main character just magically getting a little power up. Like, for example, I kind of liked it in Green Rider where, like, she gets possessed by a ghost and it's like, oh, this is a really temporary power up. You get it once. It's never going to happen again. After this, you're on your own. And then after that, she is on her own. In this, it felt like, okay, so you've got cheat codes on you know you got this power up you just better you instinctively know how to fight you've made leaps and bounds you've grown ahead i did however appreciate that they she makes clear that she's becoming a better fighter for the story because she's learning to access this power and then utilize it in her training it's not something she can't control like the phoenix in the poppy war it doesn't do that played out thing of oh i can't access this power until i'm really in danger and then i can access it Part of her training is she's just figuring out how to tap into it whenever she needs it. So I appreciated that. So for that reason, I didn't mind it at all. I think I'm on your side of this. It just had just the right balance. When I first read it, I was like, oh, God, mm-hmm. don't, don't just make her better than people who have trained for years so that we can still be with our main character in these, like, upped threat levels. But I think it gave yeah. her just enough that she was working for it. She did have to earn it. That I was like okay, you, you you can have it. You've done enough and it keeps things moving because I would not want you to be on the sidelines any more than you already are. So take your power up. I'm really glad you brought up Green Rider because I actually thought about Green Rider quite a bit while reading this book. That makes sense. Uh, another story written by a great author which focuses on our female main character running off on a mm. horse 
to do adventure uh, mostly this is actually just i have a lot to add there it's just it made me sad for green rider at one point i fucking miss green rider man we gotta get to that third book sometime genuinely i fear this story i was just like it what it made me reminded me firstly obviously the setup got green rider in my head but what kept compounding me to think about green rider was that every time that sisters of sword and so- uh, sword and shadow was being a bit slow I would think back to Green Rider and go, oh, that, that was a quick-paced novel. Now, that was an author that knew how to keep you turning. Gosh. I missed that book. More books should be like Green Rider. I think I have one more thing to talk about, Duncan. Okay, Geordie. Lay it on me. I just... It's just... There's just some stuff i got to whinge about. And it is whinging, but there's just these weird details in this story, right? Geordie, I want to make it very clear that I've whinged so much throughout this podcast and I do feel like I've nitpicked and whinged and I know exactly what you're about to bring up and it's a technicality. I, I mean, I, I I, I, just cannot, I can't, I hate to be this guy, I really do, because it's not important at all to the story, but it's so glaringly obvious that I just really need to bring it up. Duncan, your profession, your profession you're an engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer, yeah, master. What do you think about steel tin alloys for swords um when that sword hits a just a steel sword uh your steel tin one is going to notch and it's going to break and i would not want to be the guy holding it when it happens yeah so in this story Laura Bates are clearly concerned about a complaint people are going to have, which is that, oh, women aren't strong enough to wield steel swords against men. And she's taken this on board and she said, you're right, I really need to find a way to level the playing field. And the way she's decided to do this is to say, swords are too heavy. So instead, they're going to have a very clever blacksmith invent a steel tin alloy to make sure their blades are the same size, but they're lighter and therefore faster. And therefore, they can keep up with a man. They can use their greater agility. And right from the start, from first principles, I don't like this. I think it's really disrespectful to her characters, actually, to say they're so frail and they're so weak, they can't pick up a longsword. Longswords weigh about three pounds. Three pounds is, let me do some quick maths, divided by 2.2. That's one and a half, less than one and a half kilograms, like 1.3 or something. That's about right. So it's like a... Yeah, so it's like a bag of rice. Yes, and ultimately, if you're still going to be fighting in the same style, as in big heavy swings, you're clashing your blades together, that doesn't help you. You're not being quicker. If you want to be quicker, and you want a quicker approach to the fight, there are just different types of swords that are designed for that. Yeah, just make the blade skinnier, right? Yeah, make the blade skinnier. I, I know you. there's a complex history of sword design and it would be like you know they can't just pull out a rapier in arthurian times it might seem a bit off no but long swords long sword is a really vague term like loads and loads and loads of different swords fall into the same category as long sword and by the way these are like we've said they're arthurian knights and we just sort of let that go we should make clear that the specific model she's using is very much the Vulgate depiction of Arthurian knights, in that they wear plate and mail, but they don't wear just mail. We're not doing, like, sub-Britain, uh, sorry, sub-Roman Britain, where, like, 
they were in chainmail and that's like a super big deal because that's quite expensive back then. It's like the Iron Age, you know? No, this is like medieval times. This is almost like Plantagenet times, you know? So with that in mind, they are not using long swords anyway. They were using arming swords because that's what knights tended to use. And arming swords are quite small swords, actually. They're not massive, heavy swords. They're supposed to be quick sidearms. Basically, you don't need to patronize these characters by saying they need to use dainty, weak metal to compete. Just have them use steel swords. Sarah Jamas's characters just use steel swords. I don't think... Jennifer Armentrout just has her characters use steel swords. Thing is, Jordi, I think it would have bothered me far, far less if they just used steel swords... And firstly, it would bother me less if they're not addressed. They're training hard. They're just training yes, extra hard. Yeah, well done characters. for you. They're like athletes. You know, they're scenes. You know, they're they're pushing iron, whatever. Or then address just the fighting style. If they maybe you know they've developed this sisterhood, have maybe worked on their own approach to fighting. They're like you know. You're not if you go up against a guy in full plate and he's swinging his blooming broadsword at you, don't stand there and try and block. Mm. We advise you to move out the way. That's, Maybe have a little that, bit of that. Yeah, I mean, just say like, or have them have them say like, when you know in in Cass's early days, say, oh, Sigrid, I can't fight against you. You're too strong. Have her say, your opponents are always going to be stronger than you. They're always going to be taller than you. They're always going to have a longer reach than you. So you're just going to have to deal with that. I'm sorry, it's not fair, but you just have to fight. Also, maybe just throw in different weapons. Have a spear. Matters a lot less then. That, that's a whole different thing. Like, characters in Aragorn don't use spears for a very important reason. That is, spears suck. They're not cool fantasy weapons. You want your hero using a sword. If I was in any of these situations, I totally want the spear. I want and Of course the you want the spear. The, the spear is the best weapon possible for this situation. But it's... it's, it's Spears are lame, Duncan. They suck. You, what, I have, you? I, I've watched the movie Three Hundred, mate. They're amazing in that. Phalanx spears at the ready. Oh, great film. Only Bernard Cornwall knows how to make spears cool. Only he knows how to do it. And even he has the sword. Has them get their swords out all the time. To be fair, there's a great scene in the Warlord trilogy, which I've only read the first one of, as admitted earlier, where the main character is sat down with like a, an old grizzled warrior who's like, ah, oh, these modern knights in their fist scale plate. The only iron a man needs, the one on the nub of his shield and the one on the tip of his spear. And I'm like, yeah, that guy. That is such a good scene. That And that guy gets fucking killed for being a bad bloke, like <laughs> King Arthur, who doesn't appear in this story. Anyway, um... Oh, like, since we're talking about armor and, like, metal, i got to bring this up. So, this happens a lot, and I want to make this really clear. This happens all the time in all fantasy novels. I've, like, sung the praises of Sarah J. Mass and how she's having her characters just use steel. She's very guilty of this. That's leather armor. Duncan, leather armor isn't real. It's a thing made up by fantasy authors. I let it slide most of the time. And I... But, but there's no, a specific no, no, reason... No. I've played Oblivion, mate. I've equipped leather armor. No, no, there's no, there's no such thing as leather armor. What your, your, your people use is gambeson, which is like cloth. They use cloth armor. It's much more effective. It's thicker. It, it, it like you don't get as bruised or as wearing because like you've got padding. It's like a, you know, it's padding, <laughs> and it's also cut resistant. But in this, they wear leather armor. But the weird thing about it 
is that she still names all the different parts of the leather armor as though it were made of steel. They have pauldrons and greaves and vambraces and different parts of the cuirass, which means that they're leather plates. I did have this. I was thinking, like, does it have, like, a wooden interior? That's how I was genuinely pitching it. Like, they took, like, a, a wooden skull and, like, pulled leather over it. It just it doesn't make effect. sense. It doesn't make sense. And there's a scene in it where they say only the really rich knights could afford chainmail. That's ridiculous. That's just absurd. Chainmail is not expensive. It's metal rings. It takes a lot of time to make. It's hard work. But chainmail is just tiny bits of metal all strapped together. A common soldier would have chainmail. This is something lightly links into something else that I, again, very small nitpick. But all the people that came to the, the sisterhood, we, we meet the one blacksmith. And I'm like, are there not more people who are just apprenticed to be blacksmiths? Or no, they're just... women, Duncan. Yeah, but like every young girl that comes to the sisterhood, from my perspective, squires to become a knight. But none of them go, thanks for being here. I do want to choose my own path. My own path, other than the one who's doing the stables, my own path is to go and train under be a blacksmith or actually i do enjoy just to be honest that wasn't that wasn't clear to me i actually would have thought it was really cool if they had stuff like that whereas like women you know apprenticing women to become blacksmiths you know that would be actually really cool um yeah that didn't really play out I, i'm not gonna blame her for not focusing on like the humdrum stuff of the the estate you know i know i think it would just be nice like maybe with cass again just personal reference if like not only wasn't just decide to stay but like do you want to stay and just be a seamstress or stay and be a blacksmith or do you want to stay and follow the sword give her that yeah, bit more true. agency i would have appreciated because, that yeah it is weird that elaine comes to shelter with them but also kind of becomes a knight like she's literally there to to escape and that but elaine, also and how does elaine find them because it's the thing they're a secret is, yeah, sisterhood hand-waved. but they only recruit by women randomly showing up or them just bumping into like stray people while they're out and about. Yeah, it, Elaine comes up and says, I heard rumour of this place, so I journeyed across the country to come here. Thank heavens those rumours are right, right? <laughs> and thank heavens that no one else has given enough credit to these rumours. Their next door neighbours haven't heard these rumours, but people down in... Mercia have. Oh no, I said the, the magic word. Duncan, I have one more thing I have to complain about, right? The Saxons. The Saxons. There's a scene in this where they get their house gets attacked by Saxons. They say, they're Saxon invaders. Okay, so we, we're doing a sort of Cornwall style, right? This is sub-Roman Britain. A lot of interpretations of King Arthur was that he was fighting for Saxons. Alright, so that's what we're doing. Even though we're doing the modern medieval aesthetic fair enough people love to use that all the time that's like king arthur's merlin but immediately after they chase off these saxons and there's an army of saxons rising in the uh, rising over there you know over the horizon they have a, a witten they have a meeting and they call it a witten and witten is short duncan for witangamot which is a saxon word and they live in northumbria which is a Saxon country, north of Mercia, which is also a Saxon country. They're Saxons. They're Saxons. Why are you worried about being invaded by the Saxons? You are Saxons. You're not Celts. I mean, yes, it is problematic. Again, 
is like a nitpick because they could have just not been called Saxons. You could have called them just, they could have just been brigands or bandits or, I don't know, the Scots or whatever. And I would have cared just as much for their role in the story. But it's like, this is a lot of Saxon kingdoms. It's like how King Arthur himself, the mythos, it's like, is he medieval France? Is he actually the 600s, 800s? Like, where does he actually sit? And this just sort of blends things together in a way that doesn't quite make sense. You're using words. You've got Saxon yeah, and names. I have no problem with King Arthur fighting the Saxons in plate armour. You know, stuff that was invented after gunpowder. That's fine. That's fantasy. But this specific choice to have them kill Saxons and then have a Saxon meeting is so bizarre. It's so bizarre. And the big threat is this Saxon invasion. I'm like, now by a mind logic of history, they, they have to lose because then the Saxons do take over England. So what's about to happen? Yeah, it's going to be... Well, isn't that the great tragedy of, like, the Warlord trilogy, which is that you follow um, Dervil, Dervil Kadan, and he has all these great wars against the Saxons. He's fighting off, and you know it's all for nothing. It's all for nothing. Thousands die for those books, and you know he loses, and then he goes on to write the bloody... The Last Kingdom. And now they're, they're, you're supporting the Saxons. You're like, what about poor Arthur? What about poor Dirthal? We're just going to forget about them? Ah, uh, and what a tragic end it all comes to. And speaking of ending story, I think we need to kind of move towards our conclusions because we've sort of reached them, then nitpicked, then reached them, then gone off again. It's been quite a meandering travel. Yeah, yeah. Jordi, I want to make my points very clear. I don't think this was a particularly strong book. I did not particularly enjoy it, no. but I appreciated what it tried to do. And I do think there is a audience probably a younger audience who may enjoy what this book has but if you're someone who's maybe approaching it from the same standing that i am i can't recommend it uh, particularly not compared to some of the other young adult fantasy work that we have already covered on this podcast and and isn't that the curse of ya you know ya on the box should be for young adults it should be for teenagers but it's not YA is a marketing term which says a specific type of story about young characters in fantastical settings which both young people and adults can enjoy. Most, because YA is the most popular form of fantasy, most of the readers of books like Sisters of Sword and Shadow are grown women. They're women in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. And I don't think this book is for anyone like that. Because you kind of need to be experiencing this, I think, for the first time. You really need to be have this be your introduction to these topics. And to be honest, it kind of sounds like that's where the problem lies. Because I read the author's note at the end, and she and and, and Laura Bates is saying quite clearly that this book is for the young women she works with in the Everyday Sexism Project. She's writing this for young people. But that's not what YA really is, is it? It's not for young people. It's for young people and old people. And unfortunately, it only serves, funnily enough, the intended audience. What a critique. This book is good, but only for the audience it was written for. Isn't that, isn't that the great curse, right? Isn't that the great curse of this? I, I think so. And <laughs> I'm, like I said, I'm glad, I am still glad I've read this, but I am also happy to be moving on. I bet my bottom dollar, if Duncan, you decided the next week we were reading like Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, I bet we'd have a great time reading that. 
that's a book for eight-year-olds. But I think we'd still enjoy it. No, I, I quite agree, Geordie. And I read that book for the first time when I was like 22 uh, and had a great blast. So it is inconsistent. I can only tell you what my experience was reading it. And you can take that with all the other points of views out there and then make your own decision. Geordie, it is time to move on. And I've got a pick ready. In fact, I've had a pick ready for over a fortnight now because... Yes, yes. I had to edit it out of the previous episode. I, I Originally, I wanted to censor it, like you said, a swear word. But ultimately, I just had to... It didn't really work and I just had to cut out you saying it. But fucking hell, was it funny. People... It's my pick this week, and we, in a fortnight's time, are going to be reviewing a book. I just want it to be a bit more cosy, okay? Winter's setting in. This last book, you know, it had some heavy themes. It was kind of tough going at places. I just want something that's going to be like a nice warm blanket. And so, snuggling up with a nice warm hot chocolate or latte, we're going to be reviewing Legends and Lattes, the fantasy book by Travis Baldry. I'm pretty sure it's probably Baldry, right? We'll find out next time. So if you have your own thoughts and opinions on Sisters of Sword and Shadow, and I would really like to hear them, because particularly if you have a you know perspective that's very different from where me and Georgie are standing as two 26, 28-year-old blokes, love to hear your thoughts. Best way to reach out to us is on Instagram. It's just fantasy podcasts on Instagram. And obviously, if you want to, you can reach out to us at our Gmail. It's just fancy podcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. We look forward to hearing from you. This is one book I would really like readers to reach out to us and talk to us about because I would love to hear the perspective of someone who's like, I hear what you've said and I think you're completely wrong. FYI, Duncan, because you already gave away um, what we were reading next time, I've already finished it. So have I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't wait to talk about it with you, though. No spoilers on the opinions here. Right. See you next time, Geordie. And see you, Duncan. Bye-bye. Bye.
Now, sometimes literally, when the first tourney happens, she doesn't take part, she watches. You're supposed to like Edward and then insert yourself into Bella's place. I do think that Bella is a little bit more expressive than Cass, in only because Bella. Well, no, I mean the scenes where like um Cass is really depressed and it describes depression in quite an evocative and strong way. I felt like that was really expressive, and I thought that was pretty pretty well written. It's true, this guy is so committed to doing evil. <laughs> Hacha! <laughs> yes, so true. You can almost hear him saying, Yoink! It's true. No, no, she does eventually make the decision to stay, but she doesn't make the decision to go. And that's fine. Like, it's nothing wrong with being a character being whisked away on an adventure. Um, a ton of novels are about characters who don't want to be on adventures and have to are, are forced to take part. But those characters are still making big, dynamic decisions. Even if they want to go home, they're still choosing to how they progress with the story. She kind of gets immediately slotted into the role of student. She's told what to do. Train with this sword. Train with this bow. Tawny. Hmm. It should be her. It should be Cass who makes that choice. Like, she should be the one to cross the line because she's the main character. Hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, like, like here's, here's, here's the thing. How about this, right? The character of Guts in the Golden Age, right? Guts has very little agency in that story. He spends a huge amount of time just following Griffith's orders. You know, he does what he's told. He doesn't really think for himself. And that's the problem. That's the thing that Guts has to overcome. That's part of his character arc, is realizing that he's just a sword for someone else to wield. And he leaves to find his own destiny. And that is the true inciting incident. That's what makes everything go wrong. His big decision. kind of the same thing in this story. Yeah, because because in the scenes where they help people, it's almost entirely Angharad or Sigrid who helps people. It's not her. The final, the joust, the attack by, um, Mormons. It is a Mormont? No, Mormont's from Game of Thrones. Mordant. She fights Mordant's guys after they attack the little hamlet. Um, she loses Lily. And then in the final battle. So about three times. Close. Yeah. Initially, I was really wary because I don't like the idea of the main character just magically getting a little power-up. Like, for example, I kind of liked it in Green Rider where, like, she gets possessed by a ghost and it's like, oh, this is a really temporary power-up. You get it once, it's never going to happen again. After this, you're on your own. And then after that, she is on her own. In this, it felt like, okay, so you've got cheat codes on you know you got this power up you just better you instinctively know how to fight you've made leaps and bounds you've grown ahead i did however appreciate that they she makes clear that she's becoming a better fighter for the story because she's learning to access this power and then utilize it in her training it's not something she can't control like the phoenix in the poppy war it doesn't do that played out thing of oh i can't access this power until i'm really in danger and then i can access it Part of her training is she's just figuring out how to tap into it whenever she needs it. So I appreciated that. So for that reason, I didn't mind it at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. 
Mm-hmm. I fucking miss screenwriter, man. We gotta get to that third book sometime. Yeah, just beat to beat to beat. Man, I missed that book. More books should be like Green Rider. Anyway. I think I have one more thing to talk about, Duncan. I just... It's just... There's just some stuff I gotta whinge about. And it is whinging, but there's just these weird details in this story, right? I, I mean, I, 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 I just cannot, I can't, I hate to be this guy, I really do, because it's not important at all to the story, but it's so glaringly obvious that I just really need to bring it up. Duncan, your profession, your profession, you're an engineer. What do you think about steel tin alloys for swords? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in this story, Laura Bates are clearly concerned about a complaint people are going to have, which is that, oh, women aren't strong enough to wield steel swords against men. And she's taken this on board, and she said, you're right, I really need to find a way to level the playing field. And the way she's decided to do this is to say, swords are too heavy. So instead, they're going to have a very clever blacksmith invent a steel tin alloy to make sure their blades are the same size, but they're lighter and therefore faster. And therefore, they can keep up with a man. They can use their greater agility. And right from the start, from first principles, I don't like this. I think it's really disrespectful to her characters, actually, to say they're so frail and they're so weak they can't pick up a longsword. Longswords weigh about three pounds. Three pounds is, let me do some quick maths, divided by 2.2. That's one and a half, less than one and a half kilograms, like 1.3 or something. So it's like a, yeah, so it's like a bag of rice. Yeah, just make the blade skinnier, right? No, but long swords, long sword is a really vague term. Like loads and loads and loads of different swords fall into the same category as long sword. And by the way, these are like 
we've said there are Thurian Knights, and we just sort of let that go. We should make clear that the specific model she's using is very much the Vulgate depiction of Arthurian knights, in that they wear plate and mail, but they don't wear just mail. We're not doing, like, sub-Britain, uh, sorry, sub-Roman Britain, where, like, they're wearing chain mail and that's, like, a super big deal because that's quite expensive back then. It's, like, the Iron Age, you know? No, this is, like, medieval times. This is almost like Plantagenet times, you know? So with that in mind, they are not using long swords anyway. They were using arming swords, because that's what knights tended to use. And arming swords are quite small swords, actually. They're not massive, heavy swords. They're supposed to be quick sidearms. So that's like a w- So basically, you don't need to patronize these characters by saying they need to use dainty, weak metal to compete. Just have them use steel swords. Sarah Jamas's characters just use steel swords. Jennifer Armentrout just has her characters use steel swords. Yes, yeah, they're exceptional characters. They're like athletes. Mm. That's that. Yeah, I mean, just say like, or have them have them say like, when you know, in in Cass's early days, say, oh, Sigrid, I can't fight against you. You're too strong. Have her say, your opponents are always going to be stronger than you. They're always going to be taller than you. They're always going to have a longer reach than you. So you're just going to have to deal with that. I'm sorry, it's not fair, but you just have to fight. I mean, that that's a whole different thing. Like, characters in Aragorn don't use spears for a very important reason. That is, spears suck. They're not cool fantasy weapons. You want your hero using a sword. I mean, of course you want the spear. The spear is the best weapon possible for this situation. But it's, 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 but spears are gay, Duncan. I can't say that. That's stupid. I'm being ironic, but it's not going to be received well. Yeah, I don't matter that out. Spears, spears are lame, Duncan. They suck. You, what, what you? <laughs> Where's... Only Bernard Cornwall knows how to make spears cool. Only he knows how to do it. And even he has the sword, has them get their swords out all the time. That is such a good scene. That and that guy gets fucking killed for being a bad bloke by King Arthur, who doesn't appear in this story. Anyway, um actually like since we're talking about armor and like metal, I gotta bring this up. So 
this happens a lot, and I want to make this really clear. This happens all the time in all fantasy novels. I've, like, sung the praises of Sarah J. Mass and how she's having her characters just use steel. She's very guilty of this. That's leather armor. Duncan, leather armor isn't real. It's a thing made up by fantasy authors. I let it slide most of the time. And I... But, but there's a specific reason... Yep. No, no, there's no, there's no such thing as leather armor. Your, your, your people use is gambeson, which is like cloth. They use cloth armor. It's much more effective. It's thicker. It, it, it like, you don't get as bruised or as wearing because, like, you've got padding. It's like a, you know, it's padding. And it's also cut resistant. But in this, they wear leather armor. But the weird thing about it is that she still names all the different parts of the leather armor as though it were made of steel. They have pauldrons and greaves and van braces and different parts of the cuirass, which means that they're leather plates. That just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And there's a scene in it where they say only the really rich knights could afford chainmail. That's ridiculous. That's just absurd. Chainmail is not expensive. It's metal rings. It takes a lot of time to make. It's hard work. But chainmail is just tiny bits of metal all strapped together. A common soldier would have chainmail. No, they're women, Duncan. To be honest, that wasn't that wasn't clear to me. I actually would have thought it was really cool if they had stuff like that, whereas like women you know, apprenticing women to become blacksmiths. You know, that would be actually really cool. Um, yeah, that didn't really play out. I, I'm not going to blame her for not focusing on, like, the humdrum stuff of the the estate, you know. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Because, yeah, it is weird that Elaine comes to shelter with them, but also kind of becomes a knight. Like, she's literally there to, to escape. But also... That it, yeah, it's hand-waved. Yeah, it, Elaine comes up and says, I heard rumor of this place, so I journeyed across the country to come here. Thank heavens those rumors are right, right? Yeah, yeah. Their next-door neighbors haven't heard these rumors, but people down in Mercia have. Oh no, I said the, the magic word. Duncan, I have one more thing I have to complain about, right? The Saxons. There's a scene in this where they get their house gets attacked. 
by Saxons. They say, they're Saxon invaders. All right. Okay, so we're doing a sort of Cornwall style, right? This is sub-Roman Britain. A lot of interpretations of King Arthur was that he was fighting the Saxons. All right, so that's what we're doing. Even though we're doing the modern medieval aesthetic, fair enough. People love to use that all the time. That's like King Arthur's Merlin. But immediately after they chase off these Saxons, and there's an army of Saxons rising in the uh, rising over there, you know, over the horizon, they have a, a Witten. They have a meeting, and they call it a Witten. And Witten is short, Duncan, for Witangamot, which is a Saxon word. And they live in Northumbria, which is a Saxon country, north of Mercia, which is also a Saxon country. They're Saxons! They're Saxons! Why are you worried about being invaded by the Saxons? You are Saxons! You're not Celts! Yeah, and I have no problem with King Arthur fighting the Saxons in plate armor. You know, stuff that was invented after gunpowder. That's fine. That's fantasy. But this specific choice to have them kill Saxons and then have a Saxon meeting is so bizarre. It's so bizarre. Yeah, it's going to be, well, isn't that the great tragedy of, like, the Warlord trilogy, which is that you follow, um, fucking... Dervil, Dervil Kadan, and he has all these great wars against the Saxons, he's fighting off, and you know it's all for nothing. It's all for nothing. Thousands die for out those books, and you know he loses, and then he goes on to write the bloody seven, the, um... The Last Kingdom. And now they're, they're, you're supporting the Saxons. You're like, what about poor Arthur? What about poor Durthal? We're just going to forget about them? Yeah, yeah. No. And and isn't that the curse of YA? You know, YA on the box should be for young adults. It should be for teenagers, but it's not. YA is a marketing term which says a specific type of story about young characters in fantastical settings, which both young people and adults can enjoy. Most because YA is the most popular form of fantasy, 
most of the readers of books like Sisters of Sword and Shadow are grown women. They're women in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. And I don't think this book is for anyone like that. Because you kind of need to be experiencing this, I think, for the first time. You really need to be have this be your introduction to these topics. And to be honest, it kind of sounds like that's where the problem lies. Because I read the author's note at the end. And, she, and, and, and Laura Bates is saying quite clearly that this book is for the young women she works with in the Everyday Sexism Project. She's writing this for young people. But that's not what YA really is, is it? It's not for young people. It's for young people and old people. And unfortunately, it only serves, funnily enough, the intended audience. Isn't that, isn't that the great curse, right? Isn't that the great curse of this? <sighs> yeah. And we should make something quite clear. I bet my bottom dollar, if, Duncan, you decided the next week we were reading, like, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, I bet we'd have a great time reading that. That's a book for eight-year-olds. But I think we'd still enjoy it. Yeah, we are wrapping up. Yeah. Yep. Yes, yes, I had to edit it out of the previous episode. I, I Originally, I wanted to censor it, like you said, a swear word, but ultimately, I just had to... It didn't really work, and I just had to cut out you saying it, but fucking hell, was it funny. <laughs> That's true. Travis? I'm pretty sure it's probably Baldry, right? Absolutely. We look forward to hearing from you. This is one book I would really like readers to reach out to us and talk to us about because I would love to hear the perspective of someone who's like, I hear what you've said and I think you're completely wrong. FYI, Duncan, because you already gave away um, what we were reading next time, I've already finished it.
Yeah. <laughs> Me neither. And see you, Duncan. Bye-bye. Alright, we did it.